We have confessed Christ this morning. We have said his word is alone, the place and the source from which we hear from God and learn of salvation. We've prayed for God to speak now. So let's open his word to listen. Open the scriptures, your copy to Colossians chapter two, Colossians chapter two. Our focus this morning will be verse 16 through 17, but we'll read now all the way from 16 through 23, and we'll read in just a few moments. Your trunks were full on Friday. My kids' bags were full. Our parking lot was full of our neighbors, and my heart was full at Trunk or Treat to see you all serving so well. Way to host the neighborhood heritage. One gal who was visiting to the property said, I can just feel the love in this parking lot. And as if you would look around, you wouldn't think it looked like love, but it sure felt like love. And there was a sweet couple from my children's school that joined us. And when we bumped into them, they gave us hugs. There is a sense in which as a church opens its property like that and throws its whole heart at its neighborhood, Its neighborhood takes notice and recognizes even through the strange costumes and trunks that we had and candy that we we care. It was pointed out to me that we had some beautiful generational complementarity going on. The more veteran generation with Bible verse themed trunks handing down the gospel. Young families with cute themes like the Wizard of Oz and our college students more true to the holiday One Star Wars X-Wing was present. I was so happy with you all. And Paul, as he wrote to this church at Colossae, was so happy with this church he wrote to. He was happy with the fullness of their faith in the gospel, a gospel he said, which is increasing in them and throughout the whole world. He was happy with their hope in the Lord Jesus, who is preeminent over all things. And he was happy for the fullness of their love for one another, overflowing in thanksgiving. But Paul's happiness in them was not happy-go-lucky. It was happy on guard. It was even happy and alarmed. And as we read through the letter, and as we have been reading through the letter, there's a bit of um, back and forth. One sermon is rejoicing over them in prayer and the next sermon is praying and striving in prayer for them. He is happy with this church, but some are not happy with his readers and their particular kind of disapproval actually threatens to undermine the sufficiency of Jesus's work in them. And now he gets directly to the matter at hand. Let's read verses 16 through 23. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And again, our focus will be on verses 16 through 17 this morning, but that's the broader passage. Last week, we got an overview of this whole section and the problem we're calling add-on Christianity or legalism, a problem of adding standards for God's acceptance and salvation that are not required. And that's the worst one. Martin Luther himself, the great reformer, said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued, that's the right word, plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. At its worst, legalism or add-on Christianity simply says we can get there on our own full stop. Of course, there are many different species of this problem in varying shades and degrees. It's also adding standards for God's pleasure in our lives that God is not looking for to be pleased in us. Or adding strength to this issue or that greater than God has assigned to it. And so then twisting the emphasis in our minds, in our Christianity, in our relationships, and in our church. It's a pesky problem that creates what we might call a peer pressurized environment. A peer pressurized environment. It allures us to listen to the approving voice of others and not to God. And when their voices claim to speak for God, it actually changes what we think God is saying to us. A problem that undermines our spiritual fullness by suggesting that Christ is not filling. And a problem that derives from a litigious view of God and our relationship with him. A view that separates the law from the lawgiver and the letter of the law from the spirit of the law. And a problem with its root is in human pride, common to humans everywhere they're found. Before I was a Christian, I dealt with the problem of legalism. It was a requirement that I wear fluorescent umbros on the recess parking lot uh, in fifth grade, which is a nod to you 80s kids, if you remember that, or have a slap bracelet. Those were cool. Got to have them to be in. I also dealt it out. I judged my brother Drew for being scrawnier than me, if you could imagine. But you see, after we became Christians, it didn't dissolve that manifestation of pride to look on another and look down on another for some measure that I've adopted. It didn't dissolve, it evolved. Now, I judged him for not being as friendly as me at church. I had a Bible verse for some of these. We became Christians and we rejoiced in our salvation, but my judgmentalism and pride now had a new, more word from God to attach itself to and even leverage for its own interests. You see, the problem of legalism in the church isn't just a a church thing, it's a human thing. And it takes spiritual sight to perceive when the problem of pride and sin in our hearts is manifesting itself sneakily in the language and categories of our faith. At conversion, we repent of our self-righteousness and it's caught. And so it gets creative and co-ops the Bible for its purpose. It's a problem with three species, at least in this passage, what we're calling ultra-biblical Christianity. 
a way of using the Bible to add to the Bible. In a few weeks, we're going to take two weeks off, by the way, planned. I've got a bit of travel. Brad Baum, one of our planters that went out, he's at Emmanuel, will be speaking next week. And Brent Diedrich, the week after that, we're going to pick this mini-series, if you will, up after that in three weeks with a ultra-spiritual Christianity and then ultra-pure Christianity. We're cutting these up slightly more neatly than they are in the passage, by the way. But think of it like, think of it like soup. The, the problem at the church at Colossae isn't like one monolithic piece of religious false teaching meat. It's more like soup with a few ingredients. And there are some ingredients. And, and where we're going to strain some out, you'll find chunks of meat one Sunday and then maybe noodles the next and some of those big chunky tomatoes, if you like those, the next. There are some ingredients we're going to strain out. And one scoop has the problem of abusing the Bible. That's what we're talking about today. And the next purports to be especially spiritual. And then the next equates rule keeping with holiness. But in every spoonful is the same sloshy human pride in which legalism swims. Holds it all together and fuels it all. Now, last week, we sought a whole lot of clarity and even a number of clarifications in what was a kind of an overview of this whole passage, 16 through 13. But I'm not going to worry about abundantly qualifying myself over the next weeks as we work from 16 through 23. We'd run the risk of getting precision, but pulling the punch. So I want you to listen charitably. And then if you haven't heard it, listen to last week's sermon. Well, today we consider the problem floating to the surface in the soup of verses 16 through 17, the problem of what we'll call ultra-biblical Christianity, the problem of adding to Christianity from the Bible, of being biblical in the wrong sense, using the Bible to do what the Bible isn't doing to say what God is not saying. Who'd want to do that? All of us want to do that. (laughs) We all want God to say things he hasn't said. And we love it when a verse kind of gets that done. For us, it's easy to do and it's easy to not know we're doing it. It's a form of adding to the Bible with the Bible. The most difficult kind, the kind derived from misreading the Bible's story, is where we're going to focus today. So, maybe in the third sermon, Ultra Pure Christianity, we'll look at some ways that we'll co opt Bible verses to get some things done. Today's sermon will focus on the way that a wrong reading of the story of the Bible can give way to wrong approaches to Christianity in church should be helpful to us. It's the most difficult kind though. But before we feel the arguments in the passage, let's try to feel the atmosphere of the passage and let's camp on that and take that in. There's something in the air at Colossae and it's toxic to the life of the church and it chokes her out. And it's an air of judgment. You saw this in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. Well, if legalism is the engine and pride is the fuel, then judgmentalism is the exhaust. We're not talking about good judgment, which is a good thing. And we're not talking about judging between right and wrong, which is an always necessary thing. And we're not talking about God's judgment, which is a real and a sobering thing. We're talking about a prideful thing, what we could call judgmentalism, an air of human disapproval based on human standards for how other people should conduct 
themselves. It's a very difficult thing to live under the disapproving gaze of another person or a group. And we all contribute to the problem in some measure. And we've all likely experienced it in some measure. A family member, you're on eggshells around, a coworker who is persistently unhappy with you and their voice is constantly in your mind, what they would say about this thing or that thing that you're doing. But it's especially difficult when this manifestation of pride shows up shows up in the church and then cloaks itself in deeply spiritual language and when it's from our leaders. Maybe you found out how to win at the game and joined in. Or maybe you gave up and hardened yourself against them and now you're one of them. You just have, if you will, a different uniform. Or maybe you just hang your head discouraged from not being good enough. The voices of those in your head consistently condemning and approving, disapproving of you. Or maybe you're just, you're just confused. Judgmentalism offers expectation without encouragement and standards without reminders of our great savior. We're not exempt here from the problem. No, no church is. But I'm encouraged for how encouraged so many of you are that we are talking about this and how receptive you appear to be at this word and praise God that his spirit is at work in our church to comfort us with these words. Remember, he's saying to his readers, don't let anyone take you captive. Don't be swept away by this. Uh, And of course, any who would sweep and take captive away this church would hear this as a rebuke from their position. Judgmentalism, the atmosphere of add-on Christianity, the waste product of our pride when we seek to get in on our own justification before God by adding requirements we already keep. And you've noticed it usually works that way, right? You're rarely judgmental about somebody else over something that they're a little better at than you already. Uh, no, 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 it's, it's the things that we get good at uh, that we find ourselves condescending at others for. Got a funny story. Um, I'll rag on my former church a little bit. You guys are early and you're amazing at it. Desert Springs Church was not early. Um, they got there within, within the first number of minutes, but we were trying to shepherd the congregation to, to be there early and, and on time and all this. And um, I, I did no small little ditty on this in a sermon where it, where it just made sense and then did a blog post and we're trying to shepherd. And I said, babe, we gotta, we gotta, be, we gotta be on time. We gotta be like way on time. We gotta be mingling and you know, doing everything these, you all do early. Um, so there's one Sunday and I'm, I'm sitting and I'm watching my watch. I'm watching my watch. I was there early and we're starting and she's not here. Oh goodness. Okay, she's walking in and now I'm mad. Uh, my heart, just by way of confession, was like wound like she doesn't care. She didn't remember what we talked about. Um, and we had two services. This was the second service. And I was tight. And I might've said something like, babe, I got to preach. You know? <laughs> like, I, I, like if any, for any reason, just to help relax me. You know? um, these are the kind of things preachers think in their head. I'm leading spiritually. I need you to support me. Don't, don't make me judgmental at you. <laughs> um, and uh so uh, after the service, she, she, she said, babe, between the services, I you know, had to take the kids back to the, to the nursery and like two people stopped me to thank me for your sermon. <laughs> so 
So hold your tongue, guys. Hold your tongue, okay? Here's my point, is that I was performing uh, excellently in that department on that Sunday. And naturally, my heart was then recoiling and, and t- stiffening. So we just have a tendency to do this. So just be aware. Let's all be aware. We tend to become judgmental in the areas at which we're performing. I have a lovely wife and she's so wonderful. Hope you'll hear all that in the right way. I'm wonderful too. So, okay, so judgmentalism, okay, judgmentalism, it's all of us. It's the atmosphere of add-on Christianity. Now, often add-ons to Christianity are easy enough to spot, or at least we know how they work, right? Imagine you go to the store and get a test See if you've got good water. We've got the turtle now and um, found it in the front yard and we get some water and I know I'm supposed to put stuff in there to make the water right for him and I'm sure I can find a test to see if the water's good enough. So you go get a test. Well, what's the test to see if our Christianity is healthy? Well, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. If we added something to the Bible would be a question. We might ask the question, is this something the Bible says? And if no, is it something clearly entailed by what the Bible says? Some are more of a stretch than others, but the labor is largely in trying to be more biblical. But what happens when the rules one wants to keep are from the Bible? And not in a cheesy proof texting kind of way, but when the Bible actually says something like don't eat pig or keep the Sabbath, what do we do with those things? Or a thousand other commands in the Old Testament, some of which translate to our current life more or less easily. To be reformed by the Bible, that is the answer to the atmosphere problem of legalism. But it can be more difficult than it appears. So we felt the atmosphere of the passage. Now let's listen to the arguments underneath and on top of the passage in verses 16 through 17. One point per verse. The whole sermon won't feel that simple, I don't think. One point per verse, though, is is nice and neat. What's being said, and then what's at stake? First, what's being said? Some people are saying, you must keep special parts of the Old Testament law. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, just when you felt like this was going to be a really applicable sermon, I went and read that. And speaking personally, I have never struggled with the voices in my head of other people and their judgments for me not adhering to the monthly new moon. I didn't know we had a new moon until a couple months ago when I did a night photography trip with some buddies, and that's when it's really dark. And I would have found out about it this last week when my little daughter had a whole moon schedule on her shirt and the new moon is on there that I saw. Paul is equipping you to deal with this, feels a bit, excuse me, equipping you to deal with this particular passage does feel a bit like preparing my children to protect themselves against some exotic animal in a faraway place. It doesn't resonate. We don't have people that come to mind usually. But before we conclude that this is not a profitable passage for training in righteousness, let us never do that. Let's mine around it a bit before we pick up and leave the site. 
When a passage doesn't immediately feel relevant to us, it still is. And here are some things that you may hear from me over the years that you can think of when a passage doesn't feel immediately relevant. It's relevant to reinforce an already strong wall. Remember, Paul's purpose is to protect them from being taken captive. It's relevant to prepare us for future temptation. It's relevant to help us help one another. And it's relevant to stir us in greater rejoicing in Jesus. A greater sense of our spiritual fullness in him will follow. So our first job though is to figure out what exactly is being said here. And we're just gonna camp out and walk through what these folks are saying. We'll reflect on verse 16 in two parts. Diet and days or your kitchen table and the kitchen calendar. Restrictions for what we put in our mouths from the Old Testament and requirements for what we do with our our time and our days from the Old Testament. Both are clearly tied to the Old Testament law given through Moses to structure the life of Abraham's children when they became a nation, Israel. Now, if you're new to the Bible and Israel, Abraham's children and all of this backstory sounds a bit obscure, you're not alone. Much of the Bible sounds obscure to Christians who have known their Bibles for for many years. And even if we know lots of its content, we're often struggling to know how these things fit together. And so as we preach, there are opportunities to try to hold the pieces together in just the right way. It's what we'll do here. But in short, the Old Testament starts in a garden with God and his people, the first human couple. And when humanity fell into sin, humanity got the boot out of the garden because they could no longer be in the presence of a holy God. But God was not done with humanity. He sent them out, us out with a promise that he would fix what they have done. And after many years, that promise was focused in a particular family when God came to a man called Abraham who was not looking for him. He came to Abraham and he promised a very great promise of land, a lush land, a kind of a return to Eden and of many descendants like a new humanity, a fixed humanity and of blessing to the nations. All of this growing out of a promise that God made right before he sent them out of the garden that he would crush the head of the serpent. From that, we might read, turn back everything they had done. And when Abraham's children became a nation and bore fruit and multiplied as God promised, God's promise was then focused in this nation. God met their leader Moses on a mountain to give him the law to govern their life as a nation. Their life as a nation and a nation was not the end goal, but they would be a vehicle through whom the Messiah would eventually come. And this law would structure their life. And the law included all kinds of things that pertain to life, including laws concerned what they would eat and occasions that they were to celebrate. Diet, for example, food and drink. What were these dietary restrictions? Put your finger in Colossians and go to the book of Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. Third book in the Bible, not too hard to find. I want you to see some of these food laws. This might help as we get stuck reading through our Bibles. Sometimes Leviticus can slow us down. It feels repetitious and you'll feel that here. It feels obscure. You'll feel that here. But our New Testament will put it in perspective. 
So Leviticus chapter 11, I'll read a number of verses and we'll just talk our way through it. But this is, might've been in the mind of a Jew in the first century. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying to them, speak to the people of Israel saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven hoofed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, he's unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their fish, you shall not touch their carcasses, for they're unclean to you. And he goes on about swimming creatures and specifics about fins and scales and fish carcasses. Then flying things, they're to detest. Verse 13, the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of every kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the the hoopé, the hoop. Uh, sorry, I didn't. I don't know how to say it. Hoop, hoopua, hoopa, the bat. So then, also detestable, also detestable. Verse twenty: the winged insects that go on all fours, except for the ones with verse twenty-one jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground like grasshoppers and the bald locusts. Those are okay. Then there are instructions for what to do when things like the sand lizard or the mole rat or the gecko or the monitor lizard falls on something like a piece of wood or a bowl. It becomes unclean and there's a process for cleaning it and earthenware vessels are to be broken. And after all of this, the Lord tells them why. He tells them why. Verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and to be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves or any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Diet in Israel was not a matter of trends. It was a matter of theology. Now, all kinds of questions much come to mind. And you're worried about the bearded vulture. What to do with that? Let's start with the animals. Let me say that We don't have a clear sense of why some animals are on this list and some aren't. Some are clearly due to hygiene. God appears beautifully and lovingly to protecting, to be protecting his people, knowing more than they know about these animals. But plenty are baffling. Some were for hygiene purposes, but hygiene was not the whole story clearly. Why is it that animals restricted for health reasons were a matter of clean and unclean and holiness, making for a matter of purity before God? There seems to be two purposes for the food laws, if I could put it this way. 
in addition to practical reasons. First, God is sensitizing their consciences to him. Here's this nation in a world filled with many, many animals, and God is sensitizing their consciences to him through the things that they they eat. Think of the tree in the garden. It wasn't poisonous, but God had prohibited them from eating from that tree. Another example from our own life. My life would be the VCR on the floor when I was a child. Don't touch the VCR. Was not an eternal principle of the universe, but it helped to establish that I was a creature. And in some respect, my parents were my creators and they ruled. And life was theirs to give and to take. (laughs) Second, so he's sensitizing their consciences. Second, he's setting them apart from the nations. Setting them apart from the nations. In Israel, God's people as a nation during this phase in God's one plan of redemption, they're gathered together and they'll be in Israel, in Jerusalem, centered with the temple. They're to be set apart and God provides boundaries to hold them together as a cohesive nation. You could think of particular foods to particular regions like barbecue in the South, in, in South Carolina. As an example, it bonds us, it sets us apart, it's our thing. It's not exactly like it, but you can see how what you're eating and not eating sets you apart. Function as a kind of a wall around the people. So sensitizing their consciences to him and setting them apart from the nation. It's a little like these food laws. On drink restrictions, we have some, but no total prohibitions on anything like we have prohibitions on these foods. Wine, for example, was prohibited for very specific persons at specific times. The priest, when he entered the tent, the Nazarites during their period of their vow, We know that Jewish tradition later expanded these to be more and more restrictive so that when Jesus came, he was even accused of being a drunkard because he drank more than their extra laws allowed. It's a bit on diet. We don't have the kind of restrictions in the Old Testament on drink like we do on food, but the Jewish law has expanded on those. And there are restrictions on food and drink in the air at Colossae. It's a bit on diet. Now on days, feasts or annual events, the Passover, for example, new moons were monthly celebrations and Sabbaths were weekly rhythms from rest from work with a root in God's rest at creation. These days gave structure and meaning to their calendar. Think of Thanksgiving or President's Day or Martin Luther King Day. They all look back to significant events or people as a way of helping form the nation for the future. Diet and days. That's something of how it functioned in the life of God's people at that part of the Bible's story. Now, why would they judge the Colossians for not keeping these laws? Why would there be some that hold these over these Colossians believer? Or maybe better, why would they not judge them? They are in the Bible, right? So why not? We might say, well, those laws are from the Old Testament and that's the old one and it doesn't apply to us. But why not? And we might answer, well, Jesus came. But how does that work? It can be a surprisingly tricky question, but getting it right can be surprisingly helpful surprisingly freeing and surprisingly 
protecting uh, when you need it. Is it wrong to keep Old Testament laws like these? On the one hand, it's not wrong. You could do a Seder dinner to celebrate the Passover as long as you're doing it to experience something that they might have experienced in remembrance, but not because your hope is in the meal or Christ has not come. On the one hand, it's not wrong to keep these laws. Paul was accommodating for those for whom questions of food and drink and days were even a matter of conscience. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 14. He says, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So whether it's diet or whether it's, it's days, assume the very best of one another, that it's being done unto the Lord. And let's give one another room for differences on matters of conscience. Just note that, Romans 14 is in the context of these covenantal shifts as you have believers who have been doing these things all their life and are struggling to understand what their Christianity looks like with the coming of Jesus. And Paul is flexible. Let's allow freedom for some to be more restrictive. And where we're free, let's give people space to be a little more constrained. Paul is accommodating for those who would be troubled not to keep some of these Old Testament laws. But Paul is, hear this, utterly unaccommodating of those who would judge others and hold those laws over them. In Colossians 2, this is what Paul says when he speaks of judgmentalism, I'm calling it. Do not let anyone judge you. Colossians 2.16 is what he says to a church that is under the threat of those who would violate Romans 14 and judge others for their matters of conscience. It has moved from personal conscience to public compulsion, from personal decision to universal restriction. Paul has seen this before. He was happy to circumcise Timothy to the Jew become like a Jew. And yet he chewed Peter out for accommodating the full-blown command leveled by the Judaizers to require circumcisions of new Christians. They got the point of circumcision wrong. If it's a custom, fine. If it's a matter of requirement before God, not fine. The point of circumcision was to picture the need for the removal of sin from the heart, something fulfilled in Jesus that he brings about through spiritual surgery and the circumcision of every heart of every Christian. So on the one hand, it's okay to obey laws about diet and days. On the other hand, we see that it's not okay to hold these over others. So we've listened to what's been said. Now, what's at stake? What's at stake? The sufficiency of Christ's fulfillment is at stake. Verse 17, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let's think for a few moments about shadows. Wait, we can't. You can't think about something that is by definition the absence of substance. Any of you concerned that on Sunday you're able to see the musicians and the preacher, but it's hard, if not impossible, to see our shadows? Worried about that? There are times I find shadows useful, like when I'm trying to perceive the presence of a person, especially a person coming and who it might be. Their shadow helps. But when they're in view, I'm done with the shadow. Shadow puppets at night with the kids are fun, but that's another thing entirely. It's about all I could come up with for the use of a shadow. No one says, look at my shadow when I'm talking to you. And no lover says to their spouse when they're on travel, I miss your shadow, babe. Shadows have their place. The Old Testament forms are like a shadow. And Christ, Christ is the substance. And this is a profoundly helpful and biblical way to think about the shape of your Bible. Think about this. It has two halves, shadow and substance, promise and fulfillment. Our Old Testament, we call it in our New Testament. When we're having a hard time knowing what we're looking at in the Old Testament, just remember, that's the shadow side of the Bible. In some fashion, it finds its fulfillment in the substance side, which is Christ. Keep reading after you read Leviticus 11 and are confused Keep reading and find what Jesus says in Mark 7. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Parentheses, the writer of Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Keep reading in your Bible and you're here what the Lord says to Peter in Acts 10. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. The time of fulfillment is here. That wall of the law is coming down. And God's people will now be Jew and Gentile united in the true son of Abraham, Jesus. Keep reading and you'll hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians, food will not commend us to God, but we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Jesus makes us clean and that's the point. And it's why on this very topic of restricted foods, Paul will say everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. It's a bit on diet. Now on feasts, Jesus holds up the cup in the upper room and he fulfills the Passover. It's not fulfilled in the meal, but in Jesus himself who goes to die for his people and suffer as the lamb of God slain for sinners and to take away their sin. And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and come and I will give you rest. In summary, in Jesus' own words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so by saying we must keep them, we undermine the sufficiency of Jesus's fulfillment of the Old Testament law. We say he didn't get it done and so we need to get it done. We say there's something in the trailer that we can't get in the movie, that the shadow has something better than the substance that casts the shadow. 
And what an insult that is. I like your face, but I like that one better. No, 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 no. The shadow is a great illustration for seeing the, the far greater supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And here's the real danger with all this. If you insist on part of the shadow, insist on part of the shadow, the Old Testament law, you get the shadow. Now, I know what you're saying. You say, Trent, I feel you. But we are supposed to keep some of the Old Testament law, like thou shalt not kill, right? Or Trent, I feel you, but I've heard that the law has three parts, a civil part to govern Israel's civic life, a, a ceremonial, ceremonial part to govern her religious life, and a moral part to govern her moral life. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial part, the civic is done, but the moral is left for us to fulfill. Before you get out your guns and knives, hear what I'm about to say and then listen to the rest of the sermon. To all of this, I say, friends, you are not under any part of the Mosaic covenant given to Moses for the nation of Israel at Sinai. To which you say, Trent, I am not feeling you now. How can you say that? Remember, this is difficult. And mining can be hard, but we keep hacking away. We keep investing in order to draw a profit. High schoolers, wherever you go to school, I imagine there are, there are rules. There is a code of conduct that governs your behavior while you're on campus. If you go to school at campus, maybe there's permission to go to the restroom that you're to get or don't punch your friends in the face. That would be a rule following from some rule. Now, when you graduate, are you under that code of conduct anymore? Must you submit to the rules of your high school any longer? No, because your relationship to that place has changed when you graduated. Your relationship to the rules, whether practical or moral, has changed. Are you free now to harm other people? No. Why not? Because the reason that it was on the list in high school is because it was rooted in something prior to your high school. Human dignity tied to creation and the image of God in every human person. Your high school wouldn't likely put it that way. But that's the root. So if you're following me, there are two ways people may relate Old Testament laws to New Testament Christians. One illegitimate, I'm suggesting, and one legitimate. Illegitimate, the carryover view. We keep the laws that are restated in the New Testament. Says it in the Old Covenant. Does it say it in the New? Okay, so we keep that one here. The second approach to this would be the creation order view. We reflect in our lives the truth and yes, the commands that are rooted in our creator himself and in the kind of creation that he made. Does it say it in the old covenant? The next question is, why does it say it in the old covenant? Does it say it in the new? Interesting. What does it say as to why? It's the nature of God. We don't keep an old covenant command because it's restated. We keep a command that has its root in the nature of God and the kind of creation he made and the kind of people we are. We don't keep Mosaic covenant laws, but you have to hear that the right way. 
It sounds like a tedious distinction. I know. But would you know that this is the simple answer to the accusation that we cherry pick commands from our Bibles? We keep some commands about human sexuality, for example, but ignore others about shellfish and fabric. That's the key. That's the key. This distinction is also important, protecting us against some of the scriptural appeals of cults and aberrant forms of Christianity. As you hear this right now, it may sound obscure and you are stronger for a knock at the door. You are stronger for the next conversation at Starbucks. We can say all of these laws for Israel. But they didn't all serve the same function or have the same root. Which raises the question of Sabbath. Let's take that one as a test case. It's in the Ten Commandments. Trent, are you telling me I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? It's a part of the Mosaic Law Covenant. You're not to murder, Christian. You're under Christ. And every human is made in God's image. And that law is older than the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments reflect God's character. But not all of them in the same way have the same root. On the carryover view, some say this Sabbath command is obviously for us to keep. The rest of the nine commandments are restated in the New Testament in some fashion. So this one must be assumed. It just moved from the seventh day to the first day of the week when believers met to celebrate Jesus's resurrection on the Lord's day. So we should not work, watch sports or cut the grass on Sunday. But here's the problem with that. Not all commands have the same promise, purpose. Sabbath was a weekly pattern of rest from work that looked back to God's rest in creation and forward to God's salvation rest. The promise of land and entry into the land was a fulfillment of rest in some measure. And Jesus says, come and I will give you rest. And he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath and breaks it himself. The author of Hebrews says that we have entered into the rest long promised. Here's the point. Jesus is our all sufficient savior. And in salvation, you are ever and always experiencing rest from your works, which was the point of that command. There's no spiritual life or fullness apart from the singular devotion to Jesus Christ. And even the Bible can take you off track if you don't read it right. Not every command will take you off track too far. But think carefully about how this package of commands given to Moses relates to us. It'll save you help our church. He fulfills all the law. He gives us every spiritual blessing because he was perfectly obedient to the whole thing. And to say we have to keep a command on account of it having been given in the old covenant suggests that Jesus didn't keep it himself. And he removes from us our spiritual guilt because he suffered the curse for our sin as a perfect sacrifice. If we bring ourselves to say we must keep an old covenant command, we would only be consistent to say we must also accept the curse that comes with breaking it, which was a part of that covenant. And we must also then perhaps take credit for the blessing we would receive for perfect obedience. But of course, that's impossible. Jesus keeps the whole thing. He fulfills And now it functions as instructive for us in seeing who Christ would be when he comes. And it also teaches us about the holiness and the nature of God, but we are not under it. So that's a bit on what they were saying and what's at stake. Now, diet and days may not be a problem for us. 
I mean, it may. There are movements that seek to recover strict obedience to as many possible old covenant commands. I've had someone say to me, Jesus fulfilled that sacrifice, but not that one. Jesus fulfilled that feast, but not that one. We keep all the rest. Misunderstands the total package nature of the old covenant. Diet and days may not be a problem for us. It's probably not. But diet and days are probably, diet and days does provide a kind of a template for a problem we could consider. It doesn't mean that we aren't vulnerable to the allure of biblical bending texts, add-ons to Christ that diminish his work. So where might we be tempted to look at the shadows of Christ in the old, old covenant? Where might we be tempted? We could be tempted to look at the shadow of the gospel to come in Israel's mission. Israel was to be distinct from the nations and was given particular rules about what they would eat and wear and how they would live in order to construct a wall around them as a nation. And that provided a separation. But that is not now. At that form of point in God's plan, all things moved to Jerusalem and they were centralized there. But what does Jesus say? He sends his disciples out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this people, this church is a multinational people spread out throughout the whole world. And it's no surprise that as we drop down in different parts of the world, Christianity can take on different flavors and colors and sounds and foods. How beautiful. Be careful about the shadow in Israel's mission. Be careful about the shadow of Christ in making too sacred people. The Catholic priesthood is a great farce, a specific class of people with mediating access to God. It doesn't put you closer to God to speak with a person who is a priest, like a special class. It actually puts you farther away. There's one mediator between man and God, and he's our great high priest. Be careful about making your pastors kings who would dictate the specifics of your life and govern the corners of your life. There's a place for the leadership of God's leaders and his pastors church for decisions to be made in leadership. But the details of your life governed by your spiritual leaders is, is not New Testament Christianity. And be careful about making your leaders into prophets. I'm speaking God's word here, but you're accountable as yourself, a hearer of scripture to look to the word and believe what you see. I don't, I don't make up God's word. He doesn't reveal it through, through me as I speak, except in as much as I speak his word to you, he speaks to you. So the shadows in Israel's mission, the shadows in sacred people, the shadows in sacred spaces. Don't make too much of this place where we meet. It's not a holy place. It's not God's house. Christians can meet on dirt floors in gymnasiums and it's not wrong for us to have stained glass or a splash of color on the wall or ornate furniture. That's all all fine. But in the New Testament, things are converted. To draw hard lines from God's nature to aesthetic specifics sounds like old covenant thinking. Whereas all of the beautiful things in the old covenant are transposed in the new in the descriptions of the very people of God, ourselves. So kids, don't run in the auditorium, but not because it's God's house, but because there are people around and you want to be considerate, and that is reason enough. You are God's house, church, and we have been brought near to God already. 
We are his holy place. And focusing on sacred spaces diminishes the beauty of what Jesus accomplished. And let's be careful about why we keep commands from the Old Testament. That's a big takeaway here. Don't keep them because they're in the Old Covenant, but as the Old Covenant instructs us as to the nature of God and because they're rooted in God's nature and because Jesus commands them. Well, let's be biblical Christians. And that's a harder thing than than it may seem at first. Be careful to walk the line of scripture and not to add, take away, or twist what is on the page. And how do we do this? We keep reading, we keep asking God for help, showing up to hear the word preached and checking what we hear against the word. Hear these words from the author of Hebrews. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not, they would have, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." And therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is his flesh, that since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with full, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for the shadows. We thank you for the shadows for the shadows of the people that prefigured Christ, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and for the places where sacrifices were were made, sacred, holy places where you met with your people, but where that meeting was imperfect. And so we give you great thanks for Jesus who comes, who is the substance of the shadow, and for the spirit that he sends so that we here as your people not because we are in a place, but because we are your people, are the very home, house of God, the very place where your spirit dwells. And how beautiful is that? Father, we thank you for this gospel that solves all of our great spiritual problems in the removal of the curse and of our guilt and of the giving of our all spiritual blessings through the obedience of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.